Welcome to the Life Christian Church. If we haven't met, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at TLCC. If you're wondering, Pastor Terry is away and we'll be back next Sunday. Wherever you're joining us, uh, wherever you're joining us from this morning, thank you so much for spending a little bit of your today with us. It's great to have you here. And before I begin today's message, would, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for how much you love us. Once again this morning, I find myself in awe of your power, your majesty, your love for each one of us. And as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I pray that you will, by the power of your Holy Spirit, challenge, encourage, and inspire each one of us through my thoughts today. I pray that as I speak, that you will take my efforts and use them to nurture truth about the hope and the future that we have in you. I pray that everything we say and do today will bring you honor. Amen. As Christian told you just a few minutes ago, this morning is week five of our Rethink God series, where we are endeavoring to discover a better story about God and how we view him. This morning, we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 10. We'll use that as a springboard to how we can view God's promises about our future to help us imagine a better today. 1 Peter 5 says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, will, in, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Many of you, or those of you who know me, know that I'm a, I'm a history buff. So for, the, for you, it will be no surprise that we're going to spend a little time this morning looking at the historical context of, of some of the stories we talk about uh, and read today. And doing that will help us to give us a more complete understanding of what the original audience was dealing with and uh, as they received these words and how we as Christians in the 21st century can be inspired in our faith journeys as well. I love this verse. There's so much to love about this verse, that, that, that God is a God of grace, that, that he's called us, that he wants to share his eternal glory uh, with us, the eternal glory of Christ, and then he wants to restore us. And here's what I really love. As a person who's, who's very practical, uh, I love that he's given us a roadmap for how he wants to restore us. He wants to make us strong, firm, and steadfast. That's awesome. Who doesn't want to be strong, firm, and steadfast? Now, there's, there's just one issue. There's a portion of the verse that I left out as I was celebrating. Did you notice that? That little quote that says, after you have suffered a little while. Okay, so, so that portion of the verse is not nearly as fun. Uh, so why is it there? What, what's going on? What would make Peter include in the middle of this really inspiring verse? What would make him include this passage that says, uh, after you've suffered a little while? Well, the, the fact is Peter included it because he loved the people he was writing to and he wanted to be honest with them. Uh, to, to provide some background, First Peter is a letter. It was written in the early 60s. And by the 60s, I actually mean the 60s, not the 1960s which typically what we call the 60s. I'm imagining that somewhere in your living room, you're laughing at that joke right now. 
in, in, in the approximately three decades since Christ had died uh, or had been crucified, Christianity had spread. And at this point in history, Peter's likely in Rome. The emperor is Nero and his persecution of the Christians is, is amping up. The, see, the Romans viewed Christians as they typically viewed Jews, as hostile to the rest of society. In fact, certain charges against the Christians would become so common that they became stereotypical. By the, by, to give you a context, by the second century, Christians were known to be atheists, which you'd think is kind of ironic, right? But they were called atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They were cannibals, which is crazy, but... They were known to be cannibals because they professed to eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ, which they were taking communion. And uh, they were even known as incestuous uh, because they made statements like, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. So much of what Christianity was was taken out of context and used against them. And in, in 64 AD, Nero, as he's ramping up this persecution of Christians, he needs a scapegoat for a fire that had burned much of Rome. And he chooses the Christians. In fact, he chooses the Christians as a scapegoat over the Jews for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, there were more Jews spread across the empire than Christians. So if he had chosen the Jews, the impact of how his governors and his people would have had to deal with that would have been greater. Second, his mistress, a, 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 a lady named Papia Sabina, don't ask me to say that name again, was, was a patron of Jewish causes. So if he had chosen the Jewish people, it would have affected his home life as well. Um, and finally, to be honest, the, the, the public view of Christians was even more tenuous than it was amongst the, uh, because even the Jewish people looked at them uh, hesitantly. The Christians made for an easy target. And so Peter's writing this letter and he can sense that there's a tide turning against them. He's seen this before. Remember, he was in Jerusalem when Jesus on a Sunday triumphantly rides into Jerusalem. And five days later, Jesus is being crucified. Peter had seen how things can turn quickly against the Jesus movement. And so he writes this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's encouraging them, in essence, that God is wanting to work in them and through them to tell a better story. Now, this, this, version, this verse and this section of verses of, of Peter's letter have often been viewed in, in an eschatological sense. Eschatology, if you're not familiar with the term, is a, is a combination of two Greek words. Eschata, which, which means last things, and logos, which can be translated to doctrine or word. In this case, eschatology is the doctrine of last things and often is used when dealing with or talking about matters of final judgment or eternal life or etc. According to Justo Gonzalez, who wrote a book called Essential Theological Terms, uh, when talking about eschatology, said there's another sense, however, in which eschatology is of fundamental importance to to Christian theology, in that it is the basis of Christian hope and joy. It is the expectation that in the end, God and God's love will prevail. It's understandable when we read that, although somewhat regrettable, that this verse then has been used solely in the context of hoping towards the future. Today, I want to propose, actually, I am proposing, 
that we realize that the future God has for us is not just about forever, but it's about today as well. You see, when one looks at biblical history, especially, especially biblical history in the Old Testament, one will find that it was not uncommon for Jewish people when they were in a difficult situation to look to God for the realization or fulfillment of the covenant he had made to Abraham. See, Peter's in, uh, he sees that this, the trials of Christians are going to grow. And so as is common in Jewish history, as we see throughout the Old Testament, when they find themselves in difficult time, they draw strength from looking at the promises of God. And so let's, we're going to do that today. We're going to look at an Old Testament story to give us context um, uh, for how Israel often found hope when they were in the middle of trouble. There are several examples that we could use, but the one we'll look at today is a, it's a famous passage. It's, it's one of what I like to call t-shirt verses. Uh, Jeremiah 29 11 is a great verse. And it's part of an Old Testament passage where God is telling a better story to the people of Israel. It's a better story than they even understood at the time. Jeremiah, starting in verse 10, 29, starting in verse 10, it says this. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. I will be found by you. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. This is an excerpt of another letter. It's a letter Jeremiah had written to the exiled people who were living in Babylon. In Babylon at the time, there was about 10,000 people who had been previously the prominent people or residents in Jerusalem. And in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, forces these people to relocate. And that's the audience that Jeremiah is writing to, these 10,000 people living in the city of Babylon. For some time prior to the exile, the Jewish people had been living under the, do the domination of, uh, at some points, the Egyptian leaders, and then other times the Babylonian Empire. Eventually, they were carried into exile. Now, I've never experienced that. I don't know what it's like to live under the thumb or the, the domination of enemies. I, I freely admit, sadly, that there are still places in the world today that seem to be experiencing this. Uh, but I don't, I don't know what it's like to be carried away from my home and taken to a foreign country. On top of that context, if you read a little bit back in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 25, he, uh, Jeremiah prophesies or speaks something that God had told him that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. However, in chapter 28, there's another prophet named Hananiah who says, who declares that God has changed his mind. He says, uh, actually, uh, this is going to last two years, and then God's going to break the yoke of, of, of Babylon and freeing the people to return home. If you're an Israelite, which prophecy would you prefer? For me, two years seems way better than 70 years. In fact, I would like to, I'd start singing about that. That's awesome. The problem was 
that it wasn't really true. Hananiah hadn't heard from the Lord, except although he said he had. Actually, he was kind of reading this, the political situation at the time. Nebuchadnezzar was, in, in, it was occupied in a battle against Egypt, and the fact is he could pay very little attention to what was happening in Israel. Rumors had spread that Babylon was weakening, and, and even Jeremiah seems to want or to, appears to seem to be okay with what Hananiah is prophesying. Uh, but then uh, God appears to Jeremiah and says to him, no, in fact, it's going to be 70 years. Hananiah had made a political assessment. He tried to read to, to see what was going to happen. And in an effort to make himself look better, he tried to attach God's name to his prediction. And so in, we get to chapter 29, and Jeremiah openly rebukes Hananiah for his lies. And once again, he, in verse 10, he instructs the people uh, that they would live in Babylon for 70 years and that they should settle down and, and build houses and marry. And they should even pay, pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city in which they now found themselves. And so when understood in the context, we discover that the words of Jeremiah 29, 11, were spoken to people in the midst of a hardship, in the midst of a suffering. People were, uh, were likely desire, people who were likely desiring an immediate rescue uh, are, find out they're not going to get one, but they hear this verse to inspire hope to them. And that God's response is not to provide an immediate escape from the situation for them, but rather he promises he has a plan to prosper them in the midst of their current situation. Because God is writing a better verse. God is writing a better story. Jeremiah 29, 11 is an inspiring verse. In fact, if, if the room were filled today, if we, if we weren't getting the snow that I can see out the window right now, I would, I would guess that, that many of the people in the room, and I, I guess many of the people watching online, that you would say that this is your favorite verse. I am not trying to do anything to discourage you from loving this verse. But I do want to remind us that the verse is an excerpt to a letter that was written to a very specific group of people. And I am not one of those people. We're not the people living in exile in Babylon. But on the other hand, there are certainly some principles that we in the 21st century can glean from the text that will help us understand how God is weaving our lives into his better story. Principle number one, God has a plan for all of us and each of us. See, God has a plan individually and corporately. It's a plan that has, uh, for each one of us individually, and it's not uncommon, especially in Western society, for us to talk about how God has our individual plan. God has a plan for each of us. Here at TLCC, we talk about the dreams God has for us. Um, he also has a larger plan collectively, and he's using our personal stories uh, to be part of a great tapestry that he's weaving together. We are part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And while only God knows the plans, we can know something about his intent for those plans. You see, his plans for, to, are to use all things for good. God wants to use the beautiful and the messy, the straightforward and the confusing, 
the wonderful and the painful part of our lives to transform us more into the image of Jesus and to lead us into the dreams he has for us. Side note, if God's plan is to make us more like Jesus, then we can expect trials. Jesus' life was marked by trials. I don't see a comfortable picture of someone carrying their own cross. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And he, he asked us to do the same. Therefore, we need to accept our trials instead of running for the, from them. Thankfully, we know, that Jesus, we know from Jesus' life there's a purpose to our pain. God doesn't waste anything, including our sufferings. And so he's not surprised when we go through a difficult time. God doesn't always remove us from our trials, but he does plan to use them. And his plan is better than ours for several reasons. I'm a planner. I like to make plans. And when I make plans, I don't do well when we deviate from them, to be honest with you. But I make plans on what I see around me. God has a bigger sense of what's going on. He, his plans are bigger because he knows more. God is the creator of the universe. He knows how things are going to work out, and we can trust that his ways are better than ours. Principle number two, God's plan is for his glory and our good. The primary purpose for the plan of God is for creation to be redeemed through Jesus. But good doesn't necessarily always equal immediate comfort. One of the things that we need to learn is that we may need to redefine our definition of good. Some examples in the Bible. God didn't rescue Noah by stopping the flood. He kept him safe in the waves. He didn't save Daniel from the lion's den, but he protected him from the beasts. He didn't keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from going into the fire, but he saved them in the midst of the flames. Even when God didn't rescue them from the fire, they chose to trust his plan. Even though God is able, we can trust that when he doesn't do the things we think he should do in the time we think he should do them, we can trust that God's plan is for our good. I don't just know this from scripture, I know this from my own life. God has used my failures to make me dependent on him. He's used uh, the rejection that I face to make me full of grace and truth. He's used, uh, he wants to use what we're going through. He wants to use what you're going through. God uses all things. He redeems suffering. God wants to take our pain and our heartache and transform us through it. He wants to use it for his glory and for our good to make us more like Jesus for, the sake, for our sake and for the sake of the world. Because one of the biggest things God needs, I mean, the, excuse me, one of the biggest things our world needs is to see Jesus through you. And God's plan for our world includes a transformed you and I walking into our areas of destiny. Being part of God's plan is how we need to define good. Let me say that again. Being part of God's plan is how we need to define being, is define good. A prayer like, God, use me to reflect your love and your character in my office this week, even if it makes me a bit uncomfortable, lead me to the good you have for me, is a prayer from one who recognizes that good means being part of God's grander plan. 
Principle number three, God's plan inspires hope. Remember, the, the audience was a group of people living in exile. And while hearing that they were going to be there for 70 years didn't sound as good as it would be them for two years, look again what God is promising. Hananiah's prediction said that this will end in two years and you'll go home. That was the, that was the full stop. Here's what God says. I will come to you and I will do all the good things I have promised. I will bring you home again. My plans are for your good and not harm. I'll give you a future, a hope. I will listen. I will be found. I will end your captivity. I will restore your fortunes. Amazingly, when you look at what God was saying, in many ways, it was way better. It was a much better scenario than anything Hananiah was proclaiming. He was talking about two years, but God is talking about a holistic redemption. Howard Thurman uh, was a civil rights leader in, uh, who grew up as a black man in the South in the ni- early 1900s. He became a well-known author, a philosopher, a theologian, an ed- educator, civil rights leader. As a prominent rel- religious figure, he played a leading role in many social justice movements and organizations of the 20th century. His theology of radical nonviolence influenced and shaped a generation of civil rights activists, and he was a key mentor to the leaders of the civil rights movement, including Martin Luther King Jr. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he writes about how for many people and people groups, fear is one of the things that wrestles or steals hope from them. His life, the things he experienced and witnessed, gave him insights into how hopeless people could feel, and he also saw how God helped people overcome that feeling. He writes, The core of the analysis of Jesus is that man is a child of God, the God of life that sustains all nature and guarantees all the intricacies of the life process itself. The idea that God is mindful of the individual is of tremendous import in dealing with fear. In this world, the socially disadvantaged man is consistently given a negative answer to the most important questions upon mental, uh, upon which mental health depends. Who am I and what am I? The first question has to do with a basic self-estimate, a profound sense of belonging, of counting. If a man feels he does not belong in the way in which is perfectly normal for other people to to belong, he then develops a deep sense of insecurity. When this happens to a person, it provides the basic material for what psychologists call the inferiority complex. The awareness of being a child of God tends to stabilize the ego and results in a new courage, fearlessness, and power. It establishes the ground of personal dignity so so that a profound sense of personal worth can absorb any fear. Think about Dr. Thurman's words juxtaposed over people living in exile. There's a hopelessness for them. And then God says, I'm coming to give you hope and a future. I'm going to restore you. Knowing that God is for us instills a hope and a confidence that is able to overcome the storms of our life. As Peter learned on the Sea of Galilee, 
when, when he walked on water. We can be swallowed up by the storms of life or we can find hope in Christ. Principle four. God's plan involves a future. Lastly, let's look at uh, Luke 17 and we read an interaction between Jesus and some Pharisees. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, when I read this, when I've read this for most of my life, uh, I, I imagine a group of hostile Pharisees coming to Jesus and demanding that he either put up and produce the kingdom of, of the God or of the Messiah or shut up and stop claiming that he was the Messiah. In Jesus' day, people longed for the coming for the kingdom of God. They knew the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, which spoke of the glory of the coming Messiah, and they wanted that kind of life on earth now. For them, understand, for them, the kingdom of God was nationalistic. They wanted to be free from Roman oppression. They wanted to be an established, credited, and recognized nation that held the respect of their neighbor states. And that changes maybe a little bit the way you view the Pharisees coming to Jesus as not someone to pick a fight, but hopeful, desperate for God to come and do what they thought he should. But Jesus is presenting a totally different scenario. And a totally new idea. He's redefining what the kingdom of God should be, how it should be thought about. That is to say, the kingdom of God works in, God, in man's hearts. It's not to produce new things, but new people. It's not a revolution of material things or lands it's, uh, that we look for, but it's a revolution in the hearts of man. And here's the, key, the third thing. It's available now. You don't have to wait for it, Jesus is saying. It's here in your midst. The kingdom of God is available to you. Sometimes, oftentimes, if we're honest, we find ourselves imagining our future, and it's a better future. With that in mind, I want to encourage you to imagine a better today. The future is now. God is wanting to do things in you and through you now that will affect now and eternity. And so with those principles in mind, let's, let's go back to 1 Peter and look again at, at, with, with the understanding that we have a hope and a future that can mo- drive our motivations now. We can imagine a better today as we, ima- as we live a better story, as eternally minded people focused on bringing God's presence to earth. We've talked about eschatology this morning. We've talked about being called into God's glory through Christ. We've looked at at how the future that God is promising us begins now. But how do we live as people who understand that our forever future includes the here and now? Several years ago, Scott McKnight wrote a book called The Heaven Promise. In the book, he he writes a chapter about how eternally-minded people should live today. Using this chapter as our primary source, I want to offer some takeaways this morning that can help us be eternally-minded people focused on fulfilling God's plan for us today. First, eternally-minded people focused on fulfilling God's plan here on earth trust God. God has made promises. 
He has entered into a covenant relationship with us, and we need to trust that God will fulfill his promises. We are called to trust God and his promises in our daily lives, and we exhibit this trust. We, we show this trust by how we live in our every day. We need to understand that by choosing to trust God, uh, we, we know that it won't always be easy, but we must remember that we are promised that God will be faithful. One of the things that is helpful for me to trust God and, and to know that I can rely on him is to read about the life of Christ. When we open our Bibles and begin reading the Gospels, we see Jesus go through it all, joys and sorrows, commitments and betrayals, birth, growth, life, death. But if you read the Gospels, any one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to the end, you encounter a resurrected Jesus, knowing that Jesus wants to share his eternal glory with us, enables us to trust him with our past, our present, and our future. Now, trusting may look different to different people at different stages of life. It won't always be easy, but trusting God is a genuine mark of eternally minded people who are looking to fulfill God's plan here on earth. Next, eternally minded people focused on fulfilling God's plan here on earth are diligent. They're diligent about living out God's, uh, living out God's calling on them in their area of destiny. Here at TLCC, we believe the area of, our, of destiny, we believe that area of destiny is where our mission, our passions, and our giftings converge. We are called to be good stewards of what God has called us into. We should be diligent and excellent in our areas of uh, destiny. Wisdom helps us see that God has put us each in certain places. I want you to imagine on this, if you're in New Jersey on this snowy morning, God has put each of you in a sunny place. If you like the sun. If you like the snow, he's put you out in the snow. We should embrace the desire to bask in the sun that God has given us. Elizabeth Ashtemeyer, a wonderful biblical scholar and preacher, put it this way when speaking about our need to be diligent about working in our gifts now. God takes the little gifts of excellence and hope and faith that we have in the little contributions of beauty that we make, and he brings them into all perfection in a kingdom that will not pass away. We should do what we're called to do, and we should do it to the best of our ability, to do it with an eye on exercising our gifts and abilities as we run into the dreams that God has for us, both now and in the future. Three, Eternally minded people focus on fulfilling God's plan here on earth. They pursue community with like-minded individuals. We are meant to live in community. This past Friday morning, Pastor Ryan and I hosted our Friday morning live. It's, it's a weekly thing our pastoral team does on Facebook where we discuss the daily devotionals from the week. During our conversation, Ryan talked about how having community has been so instrumental in him being able to walk through some of his life's more difficult times. You saw in our life group video earlier today that we are starting a new season of life groups here at TLC. These groups are the type of important community that we all need to be engaging in. Fourth, 
eternally minded people focused on fulfilling God's plan here on earth pursue making things right. Jesus came to redeem and to restore creation. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, in fact, in Genesis chapter three, we see God already planning on how he would bring restoration. He does that through Jesus. I'm a, I'm a fan of the DIY network, uh, which means that I sometimes watch the show uh, with Mike Holmes. And uh, he, he's a guy who fixes other construction contractors' mistakes. His tagline is, make it right. Ultimately, God wants to make it right. And we should want to do that too. And that, should, that can entail something as small as righting a personal wrong, asking forgiveness for, to someone where your interaction didn't go as needed. It can be as large as working to correct systemic societal problems because as Christians, we should desire to make it right. Eternally minded people focused on fulfilling God's plan here on earth choose to forgive others. Last week was the 35th anniversary of the Challenger disaster. Again, as a history buff, often around this time of the year, I'll, I, watch, I tend to watch documentaries about that event. Next, Netflix has a documentary uh, that contains several interviews with June Scobie, the wife of the Challenger crew commander, Dick Scobie. When the documentary gets to the part where they talk about the negligence that took place inside of NASA, June talks about how difficult it was to forgive the people who had been so blasé about what could happen. And then she talks about how important it was to forgive them. Practically speaking, she, would, she said she would not have been able to move on in her own life had she not forgiven them. God has forgiven us and we are called to be his ambassadors in this world. And in order to reflect the character of Christ, we must be people who consistently choose to forgive. One more. Eternally minded people focused on fulfilling God's plan here on earth choose to forgive themselves. McKnight calls them snow melters. And C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, whether you've read the movie or read the movie, how about read the book or seen the movie? You may remember that Narnia was kept in snow by the White Witch. When Aslan the lion enters the land, the snow begins to melt as if spring is arriving. You might remember them walking, the, the four children walking through the wardrobe and into the snow. But eventually, they start to see things start to melt. As you go on through the story, and I don't have time to un un unpack it all this morning, Aslan is, is captured by the witch. He's killed on the stone table. But the witch doesn't know that there's an ancient formula at work. When an ancient victim voluntarily surrenders to the power of the witch, her powers are broken. The stone table cracks. The lion returns to life. And Aslan begins to melt more things. Eventually, he makes his way to the witch's castle. 
and he breathes life into those who had been frozen. This is a wonderful image of what happens through Christ. The snows of evil, of systemic injustice, of non-reconciliation melt under the illumination and the grace of Jesus. But we are not to wait for the future to get to snow melting. The future is now. We are called now to melt the snow in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. The deep-rooted scars, hurts, pains that cause us to continue to build walls, God's love contains snow-melting grace that can bring down those walls. The band's going to lead us in one more song this morning. Realize that God is not wanting us to wait until an afterlife, a heaven, to experience his presence. We are not meant to sit here and twiddle and wait and twiddle our thumbs until we die to go to heaven. I'm confident I'm going to heaven. Don't hear me wrong. But I'm not in a hurry to get there. I am in a hurry to experience God and I know I have a hope and I have a future. It's a hope that inspires me. It's a hope that inspires us to, uh, into a future that begins right now. And I am choosing to embrace God that is inviting me. And I hope you'll choose to, in, to embrace the God who's inviting you into it, you well, as we imagine a better today. Oh, there's love.